So where did you grow up? Okay, what is, what is your hometown? I'm going to count to three. On the count of three, I want you to call out your hometown. Ready? One, two, three. A lot of different places. Very interesting. Well, uh, Chris Epting has recently written a popular book about the hometowns of famous celebrities. Uh, evidently, we're, we're fascinated by how these hometowns shaped the personalities that grew up there. So let me throw out a couple of these hometown names, see if you can guess who it was that grew up there. Okay, we'll just do two or three of these. Tupelo, Mississippi. Good. Alvis. You go to Tupelo, you could visit the house where Alvis was born. Born in a house 35 minutes after his brother, his twin brother, was born and died. Did you know Elvis was a twin? How about that? You can go to the Tupelo hardware store where, where his mother Gladys bought him his first guitar. Like, who buys a guitar at a hardware store, right? You go to the Tupelo uh, Assembly of God Church where he picked up his love for gospel music. Not sure what else he picked up there, but Tupelo, Mississippi. I'll give you another one. Hodgenville, Kentucky. Oh, we'll make it even easier for you. The Sinking Spring Farm in Hodgenville. Now you know, right? Yeah, it was the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. See, all of us Illinoisans, we like to think he's one of us. Springfield, whatever. born, raised, Kentucky. Okay, here's, here's a third and final one. Mount Prospect, Illinois. Yeah, that's where I grew up. <laughs> A legend in my own mind, right? So, you know, by the way, I never figured out why they called it Mount Prospect. As, as long as I was growing up there, the only hill I knew of was the sledding hill behind the local grade school. There were no mounts in, in Mount Prospect, but that's what they called it. Uh, we're beginning a four-part holiday series today called Christmas on Location. We're going to take a look at four places that played critical roles in the life of Jesus Christ in the original Christmas story. So the first place we're going to consider is Nazareth. Now, Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. Good. I hope you said it at all the campuses. Bethlehem. However, he grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. In fact, 17 times in the New Testament, Jesus is identified as Jesus of Nazareth. Never Jesus of Bethlehem, always Jesus of Nazareth. If you brought a Bible with you, would you turn with me to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 1, and get the outline from your program. I really believe that God has brought you here because he wants to speak to you. So I hope you'll consider writing down what you think God is saying and an application of it to your life. There, there are three insights about Jesus that we're going to glean from taking a closer look at his hometown. And here's the first one. Jot this down. Nazareth was the place of Jesus' incarnation. Okay, number one, the place of Jesus' incarnation. In other words, Nazareth is where, where God's eternal son became one of us. Now, some of you are thinking, wait, wait a second, but that did happen at Bethlehem, right? That's where Mary gave birth to a boy, wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was, have you ever thought about it this way? He was conceived in Nazareth. I mean, that, that, that's where the story begins. Last Christmas, my, uh, my two grown daughters, they gave Sue and me a very special gift. We unwrapped it, and inside this gift, there were two onesies. Now, I'm, I'm a little slow about these things. I mean, I looked at it, and I, I said, I'm never going to fit into this, you know? <laughs> 
and then, then our daughters explain to us, these onesies are not for, for us, they're for the new babies, they're pregnant, they're carrying you know, children, and, and of course we were related and we put the onesies on a refrigerator and for the next nine months we watched the mounting evidence that there were, were children growing on the inside of my children. That's a strange thought. Well, Mary received news that she was about to have a child growing on the inside. And she got this news not from her OBGYN. She, she got it from an a, angel by the name of Gabriel who was sent to her hometown, Nazareth, with the news. You saw that in the video. But that, that was just an actor. You guys knew that. That wasn't really, really Gabriel. And uh, she gave him this, he gave her this shocking news. Shocking because, first of all, she was unmarried had never had sex with a guy, had no idea where this baby's going to come from. And secondly, shocking because the angel told her that the child in her would be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the angel said. And it's not enough that it was shocking to Mary. Oh my goodness, was it shocking to her fiancé, Joseph. He got a jolt when the angel announced the news to him. So that's where we're going to pick up the story, Matthew chapter 1, reading from verse 18 and following. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Divorce, by the way, it's not because they were married already, but in that day, in that culture, an engagement, the only way to end an engagement, which was a legal affair, was a divorce. But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, there there are so many details in this passage that would be worth exploring. But there's only one that I want to park on right now, and that's the fact that the baby that was conceived in Mary in Nazareth was God come to earth in the flesh, God incarnated. And Matthew alludes to that fact not once, not twice, but three times in the verses I just read to you, so we won't miss it. Look at the middle of verse 18. Before Mary and Joseph came together, in other words, before they had sex, Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Drop down to the closing line of verse 20. The angel tells Joseph what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Look at the last line of verse 23. An ancient prophecy from the prophet Isaiah is cited. A prophecy made about maybe Mary's baby. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God became incarnate. God became one of us, and it happened in Nazareth. That's where Jesus was conceived. Now, before I tell you the significance, why God chose Nazareth as the place for his incarnation, just a little aside here, a pro-life observation, if you would. What would have happened 
if Mary had decided to terminate her pregnancy, okay, now I said this is make-believe, so hypothetically, let's assume it would have been a safe medical practice, and uh, Mary reaches the place where she says, yeah, I can't have this baby. I mean, I, I'm not married. This would be a scandal to my family. And no, nobody's going to believe that story about the angel's visit and the Holy Spirit conceiving the baby. And, and I, w- I would be better off aborting this baby, ending this pregnancy. You say, oh my goodness, well, Mary couldn't do that. That would be a heinous offense. You, 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 you don't abort the God child, right? From the moment of conception, that baby's identity was already established. This is God come in the flesh. It would have been a heinous offense to abort him. Friends, I, I want to suggest to you that babies in the wombs of their mothers today already have an established identity from the moment of conception. God has been creating them in the womb. King David said about this in Psalm 139. He, he, he said that, that God wove me together in my mother's womb and all the days ordained for me were written in his book before one of them came to be. That's why it's such a tragedy when a baby is aborted. Now, just so you know, you know, Christ Community Church, we believe that women who have gone through abortion and guys who have pushed women to go through abortions, they could be forgiven. You know, but like any offense, any wrongdoing on our part, what it requires is that we come to God and we we repent. We say, God, I am so sorry for what I've done. That's when we discover forgiveness and God's grace extended to us. So if you've ever been through that experience of abortion, I invite you to, to let us walk you through to the other side, to forgiveness. Now, it's not that we're anti-abortion, although we, we are anti-abortion, not that we're just anti-abortion at Christ's community. You know, it starts with being anti-death, and so if God ever leads you, I hope you decide to join one of our teams that occasionally goes to the, uh, you know, the place where they terminate pregnancies and, and a prayer vigil for an hour or so asking God to end this. But, but we're pro-life, Okay, we're, we're pro-supporting unwed moms through ministries like crisis pregnancy centers, and we're, we're pro-life in the sense that we're pro-adoption so there need be no unwanted baby, and we're pro-caring for children who have desperate needs like we do through our community impact ministries. If you don't know about Kids Hope and you don't know about safe families, check them out. You know, we care about kids, unwanted kids, struggling, desperate kids. I wish we had 10 times the number of people serving in kids' hope and safe families than we do. Okay, that's my aside. Let's go back to Nazareth. Why would God choose that particular town as the place where he would become one of us? You know, at first glance, there is no good reason for God's selection of Nazareth as a uh, the place for Jesus' incarnation. Nazareth was nowheresville in the ancient world. You won't read Nazareth mentioned in the entire Old Testament. Okay, you won't read about it in any ancient Jewish literature. It's not mentioned to a couple of decades after Je- a couple of centuries rather after Jesus. So at, at first glance, there's just no good reason for God to choose this place. Modern-day archaeologists have excavated. You know, what remains of that first century town when Jesus was growing up there, and all they've discovered are some simple earthen dwellings, you know, that housed maybe, maybe 300, 400 people at most. 
in the days of Mary and Joseph. Nazareth was 60 acres of rocky hillside. No wonder 30 years after Jesus' birth, when he started his public ministry and was out recruiting disciples, one potential candidate by the name of Nathaniel said, he's from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Like nothing good comes from Nazareth. So why did God choose Nazareth as the place of incarnation? Well, in the words of contemporary realtors, it was location, 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 okay? You see, Nazareth was located in a bowl surrounded by a ridge of mountains that kept out annoying winds. And if you sit on a rock on the south side of that ring of hills surrounding Nazareth and you look southward, you will get a spectacular view of the Jezreel Valley. Got a picture of it up there. The, the Jezreel Valley runs east-west. It, in, in Jesus' day, the uh, trading caravans passed through the Jezreel Valley. It was a, a major thoroughfare called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. It was called the Way of the Sea because the road started at the Mediterranean Sea to the west and it ran across the Jezreel Valley going east, turned north and took you to the bustling city of Damascus. So Jesus, as a boy, there had to be a time or two when he sat on a rock looking over the Jezreel Valley and saw international hustle and bustle take place before his eyes. And not only that, in school he had no doubt learned that the Jezreel Valley is where many battles had been fought and in would be fought. Centuries later, General Napoleon stood at the western edge of the Jezreel Valley, a place called the Plain of Megiddo, and said, this is the perfect theater for war. So Nazareth overlooked the spot where the world converged. International caravans, nation going against nation in war. So Jesus may have been born to Jewish parents, may have been the fulfillment of a Jewish prediction of a coming Savior, but the location of his conception, hear me, the spot where God entered Mary's womb was a lookout point on the world. In fact, some scholars believe that the very name Nazareth might come from a Hebrew uh, verb, uh, nasar, which means to look out or to watch over. God so loved the world, according to John 3.16, the most familiar verse in the Bible, that he gave his one and only son. The place of Jesus' incarnation, Nazareth, underscores God's love for the world. You get it? Yeah, good. You know, back on, on June 26th in 1963, President John F. Kennedy gave uh, what is arguably his most famous speech. Kennedy was standing at the base of the Berlin Wall. You know, we're 22 months earlier, the Russians had erected this, this big wall to keep East Germans from escaping to the West, to freedom in the West. And Kennedy was there giving the speech to a crowd of about half a million people. And he was letting them know that the United States had not forgotten them. And that as long as he was president of the United States... You know, leader of the free world, he would do everything in his power to liberate their loved ones. He wanted them to know that he stood in solidarity with Germans. And so the, the speech built up to a fever pitch, and then he let loose with a line in German. Now, it was German with a Boston accent. 
It's going to be German with a Chicago accent when I try to give it to you here. So all you people who speak German, resist the urge to correct me afterwards, okay? But what Kennedy said was, ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner. And the crowd went wild. He's one of us. I want to tell you, God chose Nazareth, a place that overlooked the world, as location where he said, I'm going to become one of you. God became one of us in order to save us. You know, th this is why Christ's community church is crazy about the world. Not just the locales of our four campuses here in the U.S. This is why we work with half a dozen international partners in places like Czech Republic and Haiti and Brazil and Sierra Leone and Bangladesh, you know, helping them get out the good news of Jesus. This is why over 400 of you last year at our four campuses took some of your vacation time and you went on a go team trip to work alongside of our international partners. This is why we're asking you at year end here to dig deep and give generously, to give sacrificially to a year-end gift that's going to go in part to the purchase of proclaimers, audio Bibles, so that people can hear the message. God became one of us all around the world. God became one of us so he could save us. Now, it's also the reason that I could say to you who are located here, listening at one of our four campuses today, Jesus is for you. You know, don't dismiss Jesus as being irrelevant to your life. Jesus is for you. D don't dismiss Jesus as being beyond your grasp because you think he, you know, he's for people who grew up going to church or people who, who are not as troubled as you. Jesus is for you. Jesus wants to save you. Jesus wants a relationship with you. And Nazareth underscores this point that Jesus is for everybody who will surrender their lives to him. Nazareth teaches us about Jesus' incarnation. Number two, it's the, the place of Jesus' vocation. Now take your Bible and go one book to the right, the next gospel, the gospel of Mark. We've been in Matthew. Go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. So Jesus was conceived in Nazareth. Of course, he was then born in Bethlehem because Mary and Joseph had to go there to register for a government census. And if you know the story, you know that shortly after Jesus' birth, uh, wicked King Herod got word that a rival king had been born in Bethlehem, and so he sent soldiers to slay every newborn baby boy under two years of age. And so uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they hightailed it for Egypt. In fact, in the course of this series, Christmas on Location, we're going to tell you about Egypt as well. It's going to be one of the four locations we cover. And then after spending some time in Egypt, they get word that wicked King Herod has died, so they move back home, and they settle in their hometown of Nazareth. And Jesus grows up there. And years later, he takes off as a traveling rabbi, but he comes back to Nazareth for a visit. And that's where we pick up the story in Mark chapter 6. Things don't go well in his hometown. Let me read it to you. Mark 6, beginning at verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? 
Now, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Isn't this the carpenter? You know, the people of Nazareth identified Jesus as the town's former carpenter. Now, interestingly, Matthew tells the same story of Jesus going to Nazareth, being rejected in, in Nazareth. But as Matthew tells it, he says there was a voice in the crowd that called out, isn't this the carpenter's son? So we learn from Matthew's account that Joseph, Jesus' dad, had also been a carpenter. And we learn from Mark, as I just read to you, that he had passed the trade on to Jesus because Jesus himself was identified as the carpenter. This was common in the ancient world for a dad to pass his trade on to his son. In fact, in the Talmud, the collection of rabbinic uh, commentary on Scripture, we read that a, a father had a responsibility for duties he had to perform in the life of his male children. He had to circumcise them. He had to instruct them in God's Word. He had to find them wives, and he had to teach them their trade. So Joseph taught Jesus to be a carpenter. Uh, the word carpenter in verse 3, Mark 6, 3, interesting word, it means literally one who makes things. That's it. Now, it, it becomes the carpenter word because most of the things that were made had been made out of wood. So it was associated with carpentry. But it can also refer to someone who makes things with stone. It could be used to refer to a stonemason. So given the fact that Nazareth had very little wood, it had a lot of stone, you know, there's a good chance that Jesus knew how to work with both, both with wood and with stone. Carpenters were really important back in first century Nazareth. They made plows. Many people were, they had to raise their own food, their own farmers. They made coffins, you know, at the end of life when you're going to bury a loved one. It was the carpenter who made the coffin. They made furniture, benches and tables and beds and so on. You know, they, they, they were the ones who were important for making important implements. And they had tools with which to make these things. We think of first century, you know, so what did they have to work with? Well, they actually had hammers and they had drills and they had saws. They had miter boxes. They had pneumatic nailers. They had... just wanted to see if you were still listening, okay? You know, they had all this stuff to work with. Highly skilled. One interesting footnote to this. Uh, just north of Nazareth, four miles to the north of Nazareth, is the ancient town of Sepphoris. King Herod, the wicked King Herod, was dead during Jesus' boyhood, but his son Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee where Nazareth was located and decided to put a capital four miles to the north in this, this little place called Sepphoris. So he was building a capital city for himself, and according to the history books, he hired a lot of tradesmen from the surrounding area to work and build in Sepphoris. So, you know, use your imagination. I mean, imagine your, yourself standing in Sepphoris 2,000 years ago. Now, I've stood on the streets of Sepphoris, and, you know, the ancient ruins there are amazing. So I can imagine this. You're standing there 2,000 years ago, and a paneled van pulls up. It says Joseph and Sons on the side, and Jesus steps out with a tool belt. Yeah? Okay. Work with me. Come on. Yeah, you know, we don't know for certain whether he would have worked in Sepphoris, but there's the possibility. Why am I giving you all this back, background information on Jesus and carpentry? Because we're talking about Nazareth. 
You know, and one of the things, one of the primary disclosures about Nazareth from the Bible is this is the place of Jesus' vocation. This is where he learned how to be a carpenter. I just got to thinking about that this past week. I noodled on it. This is where Jesus practiced carpentry. How long did Jesus have a public ministry for? Three to four years, ages 30 to 33. How long was Jesus a carpenter? Stop and think about it. You know, if Joseph had trained him to be a carpenter, how to use a hammer and saw, starting when he was maybe 10, 12 years old, Jesus was a carpenter for 18, 20 years. I mean, picture, picture Jesus the carpenter, friend. You know, can you, can you imagine Jesus hitting his thumb with a hammer? I wonder what he yelled. Right? Can, can you imagine Jesus going to bid on a job and, you know, maybe he underestimates and he ends up losing money on it? Can you imagine Jesus, you know, bickering with the lumber salesman? Can, can you imagine him dealing with a customer complaint, this wasn't made the way you said it was supposed, you know? Can you, can you imagine Jesus putting in a 15-hour day because he's up against a deadline or resisting the flirtations of a good-looking woman in Nazareth who loves this carpenter with the bulging biceps? Yeah, I just picture this. You know, oftentimes we think of him strictly in terms of being the traveling rabbi who mentored 12 disciples, who argued with religious leaders, who walked on water, who healed the sick, who rebuked demons and they fled, who spoke to thousands of people at one time. You know, the kinds of things we will never do in the course of any given day in our lives. But now think of Jesus as a carpenter doing all sorts of stuff that you and I do on the job. You know, I was, I was going over this in, in my mind recently because I, I was praying about a situation. I had, I had been reamed out by somebody who was uh, upset with Christ's community. We hadn't done something the way they had hoped it, it would be done. And so the next day I was still kind of uh, uh, hurting from the stinging rebuke and I'm praying about God you know, give me the right attitude, and suddenly I realize who I'm talking to in prayer. I'm talking to Jesus, who was one time a small business owner. And so I, I, said, I said, Jesus, I'll bet you know something about grumpy customers, don't you? Of course he does. There's nothing about your job, whether you're a mechanic or a doctor or a stay-at-home mom or a school teacher or a banker that Jesus doesn't empathize with. I love what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus in this regard. Hebrews refers to Jesus as our high priest. You know, the guy who intercedes on our behalf with his Father, God Almighty. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16 say, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are. He was one of us, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus understands the demands of your job. Jesus understands the frustrations of your job. Jesus understands the temptations of your job. Jesus understands the relational conflicts of your job. And he's constantly inviting you to bring these things to his throne of grace and to tap into the wisdom and the patience and the strength he could give you. Now, there, there, there's a flip side to this, too. 
Just as Jesus experienced all the downsides of a vocation growing up in Nazareth, so he also experienced his vocation's upsides. I mean, Jesus knew what it was like to make something with excellence, to step back and say, whoa, that was pretty good. Jesus knew how to deliver a product that would meet somebody's need. Jesus knew how to bring home a a paycheck, how to resolve a contentious situation, how to gain the respect of customers. Justin Martyr was a second century Christian leader, which means just after the New Testament era, but still close to Jesus' lifetime. Justin Martyr says because Jesus served so many years as a carpenter, he's given dignity to our work. He's given dignity to whatever you do for a vocation. Do you understand that God is pleased not only when you're reading the Bible, God is pleased not only when you're praying or you're attending a worship service at Christ Community Church or you're participating in a community group or serving in a ministry, God is pleased when you do your job, your vocation to his glory. That's what we learn from the life of Jesus. So whether you're selling a car or you're filling a cavity or changing a diaper or designing a webpage or laying a carpet or drawing up a a contract, do it as unto the Lord and keep in mind that Jesus, your Savior and Lord, also worked for a living in Nazareth. Here's a third insight from Nazareth. The place of Jesus' incarnation, the place of Jesus' vocation. Number three, the place of Jesus' rejection. I want to take you to a third gospel. Keep moving right in your Bible, okay, to the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4. And the story I'm about to read to you from Luke 4 sounds a lot like the story we just looked at in Mark chapter 6. But Bible scholars tell us that this story of Jesus' rejection in Nazareth, you know, this actually happened two times. Mark and Luke are describing two different incidents. Now, we know that because in Luke 4, we're about to take a look at, this happens at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, Jesus doesn't even have disciples at this point. When he arrives in his hometown of Nazareth, he's on his own. Mark 6, the passage we looked at a moment ago, is Jesus' rejection in Nazareth a second time later on in his ministry, and this time he's accompanied by an entourage of disciples. Now, the reason I point this out to you, that Jesus was rejected not just once but twice in Nazareth, is because I I want you to be amazed at how Jesus responds to people who reject him with grace and with patience, with perseverance. He comes back for a second round. Okay, look at the text. Pick it up at verse 14, Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, stop right there. Jesus surfs into Nazareth on a wave of popularity. He's been preaching, he's been doing miracles throughout the Galilee region. The opening verse I just read to you says, Galilee, according to historians, would have had 240, 250 villages scattered throughout during Jesus' day. So a lot of people had been exposed to him. Jesus was something of a rock star as he arrives at his hometown in Nazareth. 
And they obviously consider him to be a local boy done good because when, when he comes, they hand him a scroll and say, you know, why don't you read this? It's the weekly synagogue service. Here, you be our reader today. Now, that synagogue service would have begun with the singing of a handful of psalms. And then after the people sang these psalms, put to music, they would recite the Shema, the ancient Jewish prayer taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they would have recited together the 18 benedictions, blessings of God upon his people. And then it was time to read the scripture. And they would pull out a scroll and read a portion of the Old Testament laws. And then they'd put that scroll away and they'd take out another scroll, scroll of the Old Testament prophets. And someone would read from that scroll. And when there was a visiting dignitary, a VIP in their midst, they would say, why don't you read? And so Jesus is obviously the celebrity visiting rabbi, they give him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Jesus reads these verses. Pick it up at verse 18. This is Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. By the way, that's the way they did it. In the synagogue in the first century, you read the scripture standing up, and then if you were the preacher for the day, you sat down to do your preaching, just like some people sit on stools today when they preach. (laughs) The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everybody spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Can you, you just imagine this situation? Up to this point in the story, everything is rather pleasant. Jesus has been given the honor of reading the Bible for the weekly synagogue service, and he, he read it so well that people are whispering, Mary must be proud of him. He's turned out to be a good-looking kid, hasn't he? Kind of a richness to his voice when he reads, saying lots of nice things because they didn't get it. Because they didn't get the scripture that Jesus had just read to them. In fact, in a moment when Jesus explains to them what they didn't get about the Isaiah scripture he'd read, they immediately turn on him. They reject him, even to the point of violence. Now keep in mind that this is the first of two times that Jesus gets rejected at Nazareth. I'm going to call the reason for rejecting him, round one, spiritual blindness. Why do I call it spiritual blindness? Well, Jesus told these people that he was the Savior whom Isaiah had prophesied 800 years earlier would come. Today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the Savior who has come to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoners, sight to the blind. I'm the Savior who's going to set the oppressed free. And everybody said, how sweet, how nice. I'm sure there are all sorts of people out there like the ones you're describing here who could really use your intervention in their lives, to which Jesus responded, I'm talking about you. Oh. So you're poor in the sense that you're missing out on a rich relationship with God. 
You're prisoners in the sense that your, your sins have, have shackled you. You're blind in the sense that you don't see your spiritual need. You're oppressed in the sense that you still belong to Satan's kingdom. Now, Jesus doesn't exactly say it in those words. I've summarized for you the gist of what follows the passage I read to you a moment ago, which makes the people really, really mad. I mean, Jesus has just told them, you guys are a whole lot more messed up than you think you are. Drop down to verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Stop there for a moment. I've stood on that cliff. You know, it's about, about two miles out of Nazareth on the south side of town where tradition says this is the spot where they almost threw Jesus off. Verse 30 continues, but he walked right through the crowd and he went on his way. Bible scholars aren't sure how to read this verse 30. Does this mean Jesus performed a miracle here? Did he kind of supernaturally freeze everybody so he could then walk past them? You know, or did he just, you know, did it just happen in a more natural sort of way? There was this angry mob and he pushed his way through as they were grabbing at him and screaming at him and he, and he left. Let me remind you what made them so furious. Jesus had dared to tell them they needed a savior. Jesus had dared to tell them that they were too spiritually blind to see this need themselves. Which leads me to pose the question to you today. Do you see your need of Jesus? Do you see your need of Jesus? Kent, Kent Hughes is a friend of mine. He's a Bible scholar, former pastor. He's written a commentary on Luke's gospel. And so I was reading what he had to say about this passage, Luke 4. And he tells a contemporary story, I assume it's a true story, about a church in an affluent community, a church like Christ's community, which had multiple uh, campuses. One of those campuses was in a, in a really bad part of town. Once a year, this church would gather all its campuses together in one place so they could celebrate communion, usually at the, the affluent church's uh, auditorium. And on this occasion, a pastor's watching, and like our auditorium in St. Charles, there were kneelers up front, and he watched as two men approached the kneeler during the communion time, kneeled side by side to pray. One of the guys kind of dressed ragtag, obviously from the, uh, from the campus in the poor section of town. He recognized as a, a fellow who'd been a burglar. He'd been arrested for his crime, spent seven years in prison. And right next to him on the same kneeler was a guy in a expense, an expensive suit, a judge, respectable judge from the affluent congregation. In fact, the very judge who had sent that guy next to him away for seven years in prison. And the pastor just marveled at this whole thing. And afterwards, he saw the judge and he commented on it. And the judge's response was, he goes, oh, just a miracle of God's grace, isn't it? Now, the pastor thought he knew what the judge meant. So he said, yeah, it really is. When you stop and think about that guy, that burglar, I mean, he was headed to a lifetime of crime and God saved him and, and the judge interrupted and he said, no, I was talking about me. He said, you know, I assume that that, that, that burglar, he probably saw, you know, big letters, his need for Christ. He said, but me and all my affluence in, 
in all my respectability, apart from the grace of God, I would have never seen my need for a Savior. I would have never surrendered my life to Jesus. It's like the words of the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found. I was blind. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. Apart from God's amazing grace, it opened my eyes, and now I see. Have you ever seen your need for Christ? Have have you ever recognized your spiritual poverty? Have you ever wanted to be free from the shackles of your sin? If you answer yes to questions like these, you'll surrender your life to Jesus. In fact, you probably already have. But if you you answer no, if you don't see it, if it bugs you when people sing, saved a wretch, I'm no wretch, you'll probably reject Jesus like they did at Nazareth. You know, I plead with you, ask God to open your eyes to reveal your true condition so that you'll humbly surrender your life to the Savior. Just a footnote to this point. Recognizing your need for Jesus is not something you do once when you first surrender your life to him. It's something you do every day thereafter. You know, i got to tell you, the more I grow in my knowledge of Jesus, the greater my sense of desperation for him. What really troubles me sometimes as a pastor is to see people who surrender their lives to Christ, maybe even get baptized like we saw over 100 people at our campuses you know, get baptized last weekend. But, but after that happens, they continue to live in the same old way. They continue to live without a sense of their desperate need for Christ every day. Friend, there isn't a day that goes by I don't get up and I say, oh my God, do I need you today. I need the nourishment that only your word can give. I need the forgiveness for sins that have been committed in just the last 24 hours. I need love for people that I can't even like. I'm desperate for Jesus every stinking day. And if you don't see your desperation for Jesus, if you think, you know, my job's counted to take the ball 97 yards down the field and when I got you know, to get it over the goal line, then I'll call for some help. You don't get it. Every yard can only be gained with the Lord's help. Now, I said there were two rejections in Nazareth. The first one happened because of spiritual blindness. People didn't see their need for Jesus. There was a second time he went back to Nazareth, was rejected again. I'm going to tell you about that. I'm going to ask the worship teams to come out on the platforms at our four campuses as I tell about this second rejection and bring things to a close. and Then we're going to sing a song, an invitation for Christ to come in and change our lives. We're going to collect our gifts as well, so get ready for that. But the second time Jesus went to Nazareth, recorded in Mark 6, we could go back to that passage and read it again. But let me just sum it up for you. The second reason why Jesus was rejected was because of over-familiarity. See, this is the time they were asking among themselves, isn't this a carpenter? See, they knew Jesus. They knew Jesus' family. They knew all the stories. They had Jesus in a box, in the carpenter box. Let me warn some of you who've been around Jesus a long time. 
about the dangers of overfamiliarity. Now, there's a good, there's a good kind of familiarity. There's a, a familiarity where you're getting to know them intimately. The relationship's getting deeper. But there, there's something else called overfamiliarity. So if you grew up going to church and you know all the stories, if you've been around Christ's community church for five years, 10 years, 15 years, if you've been going to Christian schools and grade school and high school and college, if you're a second or third generation Christ follower, your parents made the big decision, but after they owned the faith, it kind of got passed down to you and maybe just a little watered down by the time it reached you. The fact of the matter is some of you who've been around Jesus a little bit of time now, you're way too overly familiar with him. And you don't expect anything big out of the relationship anymore. And there was a day when you would give generously to his cause. There was a day when you would serve him passionately. There was a day when you, you wouldn't miss a worship service. You, you wouldn't skip one or two times a, a, a month. You, you were here because Jesus meant every, Jesus was a big deal to you. And he's not a big deal to you right now. In fact, truth of the matter is the Bears game that already started is a bigger deal to you today than Jesus is. You know, your last purchase at Forever 21 is a bigger deal to you than Jesus is. You know, the fact that the sequel to The Hobbit came out this week is a bigger deal to you than Jesus is. And I just invite you, return to a first love, Come to Jesus repentantly today and say, oh, my God, my Savior, my King. How could you be anything other than number one, the biggest deal in my life?